0: This morning we are in the book of Habakkuk. Let me hear everybody say Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Not a great name, Habakkuk. And uh, we're going to go ahead and begin reading here in verse one of chapter one. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. And there is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning... God, we pray that you would minister greatly right now to our hearts. And Lord, for any of us who have ever just found ourselves wrestling with your will or wrestling with your way, God, I pray that you might speak to us today, that you would do a work in our hearts, that that we might today be transformed by the power of your word. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. When I pastored in uh, Oregon over 20 years ago, um, our church met in a school, and so we didn't have a a building like this, and so during the week, oftentimes, I would go to nearby Willamette University where I would uh, study and just spend my time preparing and and whatnot, and uh, they had this room right off of the library that I just loved to go to because it was a room that was just, it was all glass, it was big windows, a lot of natural light would come in, and it was right next to a creek that ran through the campus, and it was also a place that you could bring food into and have refreshments, and so it was a great study place, and so one morning I'm in there, and I'm studying, and there's probably about 20 people there in this room, and it was a, a room, as I said, you could have food in, and they had a couple vending machines, and in walked this very petite little gal, I mean, she was even smaller than Rachel, who was singing up here to, uh, today, and, and she put in her, you know, money in the machine, and it was one of those ones that had the spiral, you know, thing that pushes out the candy bar or the bag of chips. And I think it was a bag of chips that she was getting. And so it's going, zzz, 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 zzz. and then it stopped with her bag of chips right on the edge and it didn't fall. And all of a sudden she breaks the silence in the room because we hear her go, Oh, man. And I mean, she was frustrated. And then this very little, small, petite gal grabbed the side of that machine (laughs) and she started shaking it until her bag of chips fell. Have you ever found yourself frustrated with God? Puzzled by His performance or His perceived lack of performance? Have you ever asked God, how come you're not doing anything? How come, Lord, you're not answering my prayer? God, do you ever, do you even hear me? Have you ever been in that place? Any of you ever been in that place? Okay, good, I'm not alone. And you know what, you're not alone either because Habakkuk could relate. You know, if Jonah, who we looked at a few weeks ago, was the prodigal prophet and the pouting prophet, Habakkuk could be the puzzled prophet, And Habakkuk is puzzled because he's walking by sight. But that's going to change as we see this story unfold as he begins to walk by faith. And the book of Habakkuk is really different from all the other minor prophets that we've looked at in the sense that although there is a prophetic aspect to it, really the book of Habakkuk is a conversation between the prophet and his God. It's really a journey of faith, if you would. It was written over 2,500 years ago, but it is incredibly contemporary and relevant. Because you see, every one of us wrestles at times with questions like, why am I here? What is my purpose? Where am I going? We wrestle at times with questions like, why is this happening to me? Or why isn't this happening to me? Or we wrestle with the injustice that we see going on in our society. And here's a big one that we often wrestle with is why do bad things happen to good people? Or we might even say, why do bad things happen to God's people? habakkuk was a wrestler in fact that's what his name means it means wrestler and embrace and he will start off wrestling with these type of questions he's wrestling with god's way but in the end we're gonna see him embrace god's will this book opens in gloom but it ends in glory it opens with questions, but it ends with an exclamation point, and this is one of the reasons why I'm really, really excited about this Wednesday night, because this morning we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk. We're going to look at this questioning and this journey, but chapter 3 is his response to what happens here in chapter 2. It's really a psalm of praise where he's exalting the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. God. It's what comes out of this. And so it's a perfect thing for us to look at on Wednesday is it's a, a response and it's broken up into four stanzas. And we're going to look at it that way on Wednesday night, a very short time in the word. And then we're going to just take what Habakkuk does here in his praise and respond as a body, as a church family in worship to the Lord. I really do hope that you can be here. Habakkuk was writing during a time after the nation of Israel had experienced revival under King Josiah. But now that revival is a distant memory. Immorality was rampant. Wickedness was rampant. The current king was wicked. And this was written in a 20-year span between the fall of Nineveh, which which Jonah prophesied about, and the fall of Judah. And Habakkuk is crying out to God, but he feels like his cries are falling on deaf ears. In fact, the second word, you might circle this and underline it, the second word it, cry there in verse 2 literally means to scream. So he says, Lord, I've been crying out. He goes, I, I've been screaming. Lord, I've been, I cry. How long will I cry out and you not hear? And how long, Lord, will I scream and you will not hear? save and this is the problem Habakkuk is looking at the lawlessness in his nation he's looking at the injustice he's looking at the wickedness that is going on in his nation and he's saying Lord you need to do something things are getting really really bad how many of you have ever thought that about our nation how many of you ever thought Lord you've got to do something Things are getting really, really bad. God, you need to work. I mean, when we look at it and we see the number of babies that are aborted every single year. And now we see the legalization of marijuana in many states. And we see, you know, the, the putting into practice or, you know, gay marriage and transgender bathrooms now. And we see the growth in the sex trade industry and the pornography industry and the racial conflicts that are going on. And we could go on and on and on about all the things that we see happening in our world. And we find ourselves in our hearts just growing this contention and saying, Lord, you've got do juice something. It's getting really, really bad. God, we see how far that we have turned from you and we cry out, God, do something. God, bring revival. I know that's been the cry of my heart for quite some time. Habakkuk has made this issue of prayer for a long time. That's why he says, Lord, how long how long do I need to cry? How long, Lord, do I need to scream? And it seems like he has no answer. But listen, listen, church. God always answers our prayers. Do you know that? He always does. He answers yes, and we're like, yeah. He answers no, and we get all bummed out. And, and, and sometimes he answers wait. And the wait answer that he brings sometimes comes in the form of silence. And that's what's happening here with Habakkuk. He's getting silence. And he's asking, Lord, how long will I cry out? Lord, I'm screaming and it doesn't seem like you're listening. But God was listening because he's always listening. And in verse 5, God is going to answer and his answer is going to radically surprise and confuse habakkuk because habakkuk is expecting revival he's expecting that god would do like he did in the day of josiah when he was king but god has something different in store let's pick it up in verse five god says look among the nations and watch And be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. And Habakkuk's like, try me, try me, God. For indeed I'm raising up the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through uh, the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. And they are terrible and dreadful, and their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves now check this out pause there give me your attention Habakkuk says God how come you're not doing anything and God says I am doing something and here's what I'm going to do I'm going to raise up a nation that is more wicked than your nation and that nation is going to be the rod of correction for your nation Now, now picture that okay Picture that response. That would be like you and I, were praying for America. God, you've got to do something. God, you've got to work. God, you've got to move. We see the carnality, the rebellion. God, do something. And God says, I'm doing something. And I'm going to raise up ISIS to do a major strike on major cities in, in America. And a lot of people are going to die. Now, most of us would find that really unsettling. Most of us would be like, What? Lord, that doesn't make sense. No way. Most of us would find that a very difficult answer to hear. But understand the Babylonians were known for their brutality. And their, their wickedness. In fact, in verses 8 through 17, he describes the fierceness and the brutality of which they were known for. Let's read here beginning in verse 8. God says, their horses are also swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their charges charge ahead and their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as in and the eagle that hastens to eat and they all come for violence and their faces are set like the east wind and they gather captives like the sand. God's saying they're swift. And they're fierce and they're powerful. And then he says, and they scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. In other words, they're full of pride. They have no respect for the authority of others. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. And and then his mind changes and he transgresses and he commits offense, ascribing power to his God. And right here, God is, is actually giving Habakkuk insight into what's going to happen when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and they besiege Judah and they take over Jerusalem. And history tells us that in that, this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did, is he, he ascribed that victory to his God, in essence saying to the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, our God is stronger than your God. Now Habakkuk hears this and he's really confused, and he questions this plan. He says to the Lord in verse 12, Notice, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my, my God and my, my Holy One? In other words, he's saying, this doesn't sound like you. This doesn't sound like your character. You are holy in all of your ways, and this, this doesn't seem right, that you, the Holy One, would use the wicked. And he's protesting here. He says, we, we shall not die. We shall not die, O Lord. You've appointed them, the Babylonians, for judgment. They're more wicked than us. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, I know things are are bad right now in Israel, but but you're going to use somebody to judge us? that really should be judged. He says in verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? In Habakkuk's mind, this is a moral dilemma. And he's saying, Lord, we might be bad, but they're worse. How can you use them to judge us? And again, if God chose to use ISIS to judge America, many of us would feel the exact same way. So I think we all can understand the the wrestling going on in Habakkuk's heart. Now Habakkuk continues in this description here of Babylon when he says, why do you make men like fish of the sea and like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook and they catch them in their net and they gather them in their dragnet and therefore they rejoice and are glad and therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay the nations without pity? Here's what Habakkuk is saying. He compares the Babylonians to fishermen, merciless fishermen. And he he describes them in this way. They're like fishermen, but they're not gathering fish. They're gathering up the nations for their own consumption. And so he's questioning God. Why would you do this? This seems completely out of character for you that you would allow these merciless people to punish your people without pity. Habakkuk is saying, not only did I have something else in mind, I could have thought of a better tool of punishment than these prideful, arrogant Babylonians. God, what are you doing? Habakkuk, in essence, is shaking the vending machine. He's God, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. And once again, how many of you have been in Habakkuk's shoes before in some situation in your life? God, this doesn't seem fair. God, this doesn't seem right. Well, in chapter 2, Habakkuk does something really, really smart. Especially when you're in need of direction or you're in need of clarity, or you're in need of vision. Look at verse 1. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Pause there and give me your attention. In this verse, we see three components that are necessary for receiving vision, clarity, and direction from the Lord. The first component is isolation. Habakkuk goes to the tower. Habakkuk knows that if he's going to hear God speak, if he's going to get clarity about what he's just been told, he needs to get away from his routine. He needs to get away from the distractions. He needs to get away from the daily pressures. And so for Habakkuk, that meant to go up into his prayer tower and to stand watch. And while he does this, he begins to move from wrestling to watching and waiting. And this is often in the way that God works. We see the same thing happen in Acts chapter 8. It happens when Peter, it's lunchtime, a busy time in Jewish culture, and everybody is, is down in the bottom of the house, and they're you know, preparing a meal. And it says that, that Peter went up on the rooftop where he could be at a quiet place to have a quiet time, to quiet his heart, and it was there on that rooftop he receives a vision, That God was saying to him, I want to use you to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. To go to this house of Cornelius. And it ended up being just a major point in the beginning of the early church. And so it begins with isolation. Putting yourself in a place to hear from the Lord. The second component though is determination. You see, when he needed an answer, Habakkuk said, catch this, note he says, I will stand my watch. Notice he didn't say, you know, I know I should spend some time with the Lord, I know I need to do that, you know, maybe I'll get to that next week. Or maybe I'll get to that next month. Or as soon as this settles down, you know, then I'm going to go and get away with the Lord. No, his attitude was one that I need to hear from the Lord, and I'm going to go to my tower now. I need to hear from him. I'll put myself in the place and I'm not leaving until I hear something. So the first thing we see is isolation. The second thing is determination. And the last thing though that we see is he goes with a heart of expectation. Notice this, Habakkuk goes to the tower and he says, I am going to watch and I'm gonna wait and see what the Lord, underline it, will say to me. Not what he might say, not what I hope he says, not what I wish he says, but he goes and says, I'm going and I'm waiting for to hear what he will say to me. He goes with a heart, in other words, expecting to hear from God. And this is a key, that heart of expectation, this is one of the main reasons why many years ago, in my own personal time with the Lord, I began to journal. Now, back then, it would be a little notebook and a pen in hand. Now I use my iPad and able to store everything. It syncs with my phone. I can look at it, you know, through the day. But it's the same type of thing as a heart of expectation and coming to God in the morning as I'm getting into his word and I'm saying, God, I'm here and I'm ready. I'm expecting you to speak to me and I'm ready to type it in and log it and save it and look at it. It's that hard. It's the same thing happens when a secretary gets called by her boss. You know, he buzzes and says, Hey, Trixie, can you come here, you know, into my office? And, you know, she comes in. (laughs) And what has happened? She comes in and she's got, you know, a pad and a pen because she's expecting that he's going to say something that she needs to write down and to pass on. So she comes with a heart of expectation. And I believe that when we come with that heart, and it's a sense of like, oh, yeah, I'm not just doing my, my reading today. i got to get through my you know one-year reading or whatever it might be. But it's a heart of saying, God, I'm here to meet with you, and I'm expecting you to say something to me, that he honors that. And he blesses that. And Habakkuk puts himself in that place. Vision is so important. It was Peter Marshall who said, give us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for because unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything. So Habakkuk puts himself in a place to receive clear vision from the Lord and the Lord answered. Look at verse 2. And then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. And the idea of this is twofold. It's it's sort of the idea of make it like a billboard so that when the Babylonians come and those who are running, they can look at and, and they can see it. But it also means to make it understandable in the sense that those who get it As they run, that they can understand it and they can run with it. They can put it into practice. And he says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. And though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. And so then he lays out this vision. And in verses four through 20, God tells him three things that are very beneficial for us to consider this morning, especially if you've ever wrestled with God or you're wrestling with him right now. Or especially if you're wrestling with what's going on in our country or maybe something going on in your life. These three things are really, really important for us to grab a hold of. And I'm going to lay them out and then we'll kind of break them down. The first thing that God tells Habakkuk is that I'm going to judge Babylon, so don't worry about it. I'm going to use them, but I'm also going to judge them because this is what he's telling him is that God is fair. Now, it's important that we realize that God had been giving the people of Judah over and over again. He has warned them, hey, judgment's coming. You guys need to repent. Judgment is coming. You need to repent. But they haven't been listening. They've been turning in deaf ear to those prophetic words. And so now God says, I'm going to do something drastic to get their attention. But he also tells Habakkuk here, but the Babylonians, they are going to be destroyed. And so the first thing that God shows him is Habakkuk, I'm fair. Don't be confused about that. The second thing is he wants Habakkuk to see the big picture. To look beyond the present and see the future. We see this in verse 14. Notice he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And here's what he's doing He's reminding Habakkuk, look, there's a day coming in the future when all of the earth is going to see my glory. So, Habakkuk, don't worry. This is the second thing that he wants him to see. I'm still on the throne. Not only am I fair, but I'm still on the throne. I've got this, and there's a day coming when all of the earth is going to see me in my sovereignty and in my glory and in my power. I think that's a great thing for us to consider today, especially because I know a lot of you And I get this way at times too, are worried about the presidency and, you know, who's going to get elected. And sometimes it's easy to just look at and go, man, I don't like either choice, you know, and, and, but listen. The Bible tells us that God puts people into power. Now, don't misunderstand me. Does that mean that we don't need to vote? No. Voting is a privilege and a responsibility, and we need to vote biblically and we need to vote responsibly. We need to do that. But whoever gets elected, God puts them into power, and He's got a plan. He's sovereign. He's still on the throne no matter what happens. And so that's the second thing he wants them to see. And then here's the third thing. Not only am I fair, not only am I on the throne, you need to realize that. And in the meantime, you need to learn to have faith. And the second part of verse four, he says this to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Here's what you need to understand. Habakkuk, I'm fair. Habakkuk, I'm on the throne. And you need to believe that because the just, they live by faith. Or we might say the just, they trust. Now that statement, the just shall live by faith, is at the foundation of the Christian faith. In fact, it's a statement that is found three times in the New Testament. Paul used it to to form the foundation of his two most Important epistles, Galatians and Romans. In Galatians chapter 3, he uses that phrase, the just shall live by faith, as well as in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And then the writer of Hebrews also quotes this passage in talking about faith in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. The just shall live by faith. So first question we need to answer is, who are the just? Well, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul lays this out for us. I'll read it to you. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, this is who the just are. It's those who have put their faith in Jesus, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to be justified? Well, Pastor Chuck used to say that it means just as if you've never sinned, justified, just as if you never sinned. And that's a good definition, but it's not the best. You see, the word justification is a Greek term, and it's a term of jurisprudence. It's a legal term, in other words. It means more than the judge simply declaring that you have been forgiven, it means that the judge declares you righteous. It's like the judge says, there's no crime. He's righteous. He's right on. So when the judge hits the gavel and says, this man is not guilty, Or this man has been found guilty, but we're going to put him on probation. That's not justification. Or when the judge says, this man is guilty, but I'm in a good mood today, so I'm going to let him off the hook. I'm going to give him just a warning. That's not justification either. Now, if the judge puts you on probation, or if he lets you off the hook, I mean, you're happy. Man, I'm not going to jail. Awesome. But you also feel a sense of shame because you know that what you did was wrong. But listen, justification is when the judge hits the gavel and he says, there are no charges. There is no case. That's justification. It's when the judge looks at you and says, you're free to go because you're right on. You're righteous. It's, it's like you, you didn't even do this. But here's the problem, right? We go, but I am guilty. <laughs> we know I've sinned, I've broken God's law, I've rebelled, I I am guilty. This doesn't make sense. And this is the beauty because you see, although you are guilty, you're not in God's eyes. That's not how he sees you and I. If you are a believer in Jesus today, this is what the Bible tells us, that not only has Jesus come to live in your heart, but you have been placed in Christ. And so when God sees you now, he sees you covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's the idea of when Jesus went to the cross, all of our sin was transferred to him he literally became sin. He took on all of our sin. All of our sin was transferred to him and all of his righteousness has been transferred to us. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's justification. That's why it's just as if you never sinned. It's it's all your sin, yeah, you were guilty, but it all got transferred to Jesus. It's like he lived your life that you might gain all of his life. And this is what Paul is saying, the just. Those who've been justified, they live by faith. The just, they trust. The just live in that reality that we know that we are accepted in the beloved because we are in Christ. That we don't have to try like maybe a lot of us did at one time to earn God's favor. Doing all these things, oh, I hope God's happy with me, you know, because I, I gave him the offering or, you know, I did this and that, you know. No, it's Believing. I'm in favor with God because of our connection to Jesus. This is a hard thing for people to learn, even Christians. In fact, in the year 1508, a priest by the name of Martin Luther was living a life trying to earn God's favor. And this young priest was so painfully aware of his sin and his shortcomings that he would whip his body He would starve himself to death. He would torture himself physically. He would oftentimes go out and sleep in the cold, sometimes in the snow. He would crawl for miles on his knees and he fasted for weeks. He would pay indulgences, he would do penance, and in all of that, he was trying to make up for the wickedness that he felt inside because he was so aware of God's holiness, and that made him so aware of his own sinfulness. And so he was doing all of these things and hoping that, you know, that something was going to make him feel better and, and feel like, you know, God could accept him. And so one day in 1508, he's climbing the steps on his knees of this large cathedral in another attempt to make up for his sins. And as he was climbing, this verse was just circling around in his head. He had been looking, studying, reading it in that week. It was Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul declares, for in it, speaking of the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And suddenly it hit him. The just living by faith, not penance, not religious ritual, not trying to attain righteousness through following rules and regulations. He suddenly understood that the Christian experience is not do, 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 it's done. Because on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. Aren't you glad Jesus on the cross didn't say, almost, or halfway? No, he declared, it's finished, it's done, it's complete. So listen, church, it's not my trying to get it together. It's me placing my faith in the finished work of Christ, and then living my life based on the premise that because of what Jesus did, God says, I'm just. I'm justified. I'm just. I'm declared righteous. And that's what happened to Martin Luther. Suddenly he got it. I'm just. I'm righteous. Not because of what I'm doing, but because of what Jesus did. And that was the birth of what has been called the Protestant Reformation. And it it changed Christianity from that day forward because they finally got back to what the Bible said. The just shall live by faith. So church, I've got great news for you today. Awesome news. You, you can get rid of the burden of trying to be spiritual. You can get rid of the notion that if you have morning devotions 10 times in a row, that God is, you know, owes you a blessing. You, you can get rid of the, the notion of the feeling that, you know, well, hey, I gave him the offering today, so, you know, God, you've you got to bless me this week. No. No, you are in God's favor today. You're just if you put your faith in Christ. It's nothing that you've earned. It's just something that you embrace by faith. So does that mean, am I saying, are you saying, Pastor Rob, that I don't have to do morning devotions? Nope, you don't. I can sleep in? Yep, you can. I don't have to pray or study God's word? Nope, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do any of those things. But catch this. It's not that you have to do any of those things. You get to do those things. You see, it moves from duty to devotion. It moves from something that I've got to do to earn God's favor to recognize and realize, man, I'm in his favor. He loves me. It moves from labor to a heart of love that each and every day that that you wake up, man, I get to spend time with God today. And he loves me and he's for me and he's waiting for me and he wants to just speak into my heart through his word. This is so incredible. Just knowing that, that I'm righteous in his eyes and he loves me and he cares so much about me and it's this amazing privilege that, that I have. It's not something that we do, do, do. It's, it's something that it's been done and we respond to that. Think of it in this way. When I fell in love with my wife, Denise, no one had to twist my arm to spend time with her. I wanted to see her every single day. And I was bummed if I didn't get to. In fact, I'm still that way now. My day off is Friday, and it's an, in, on my calendar, it says Denise Day. And that's the day that I get to spend with her. And you know what? If there's ever a, a Friday where something comes up and one of us has to do something, and we don't get to spend that time together, I, I'm bummed I'm irritable because I'm jealous for her time. God says about you and I, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous for your time. I'm jealous for your attention. He loves to spend time with you and me. Now, I don't get that because I know me, but that's how awesome he is. And so he says, look, the just, they live by faith. They trust me. They enjoy me. They know that they're loved by me. And it changes everything about the way that they live and go through life. The just, they live by faith. Now, don't miss this. What the Lord does here in the remainder of chapter 2 is really, really interesting. Because he's going to make a contrast. He's going to make a contrast between Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and their pride. And Habakkuk and anybody else who would choose to live the life of faith, notice verse four again, he says, behold the proud, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. And this contrast continues to describe the proud and what he does and what he's given to. And it's sort of the opposite of faith. And so he lays this out and he says, this is the proud, verse 5. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man and he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desires as hell and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, and he gathers to himself all nations, and he heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up the proverb against him and taunting riddle against him, saying, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. And here's what he does. In verses 6 through 20, he pronounces five woes on the proud five woes. He says this is what they are given to. And we're not going to read all of this today. You can read it on your own. But I'm going to summarize each one of these woes for you. And we see it as the opposite of a person living by faith. So the first woe that we read there in verse 6 is that they're given to greed. They're given to greed. And the Babylonians were extremely wealthy. But they had gathered their wealth by plundering other nations. And this is often the characteristic of anyone who doesn't live by faith, is they're given to greed because this is how they think. I need to get as much as I can to secure my future because it's all up to me. Those living by faith, though, it's the opposite. They're not given to greed, but they're generous because they're trusting God for their future. So they're givers, not hoarders. They're, they're into giving and helping others. They're into tithing because they realize, hey, my future, it's in God's hands. Yes, it's smart to plan, but, but they're not greedy. The second thing he says they're given to in verses 9 through 11 is they're given to injustice. He says, woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. And again, this was something that the Babylonians, they gathered, but they used evil means in order to do it. And a person who is not given to faith and is given to greed will turn to injustice to get ahead. They will be those who are prone to cut corners in their business and do what they need to do rather than trusting God. But those living by faith are more concerned with their integrity than the bottom line. They're more concerned with doing things the right way, even if it means taking a loss because they're trusting in God. Number three, in verses 12 through 13, he says they're given to violence. And Babylon was given to brutality and violence. He says, woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed. And that was their MO. And again, the person who is not living by faith will be one who will start to lash out. They'll start to panic when things aren't going their way. And rather than trust God, they get defensive. They try to take matters into their own hands. And it doesn't matter who they run over in the process. We see this sometimes with husbands, with their wives, or employees, with their employers, as they think, man, the only way that I can lead in my family or in my company is that I've got to show them who is boss. And so they use strong-arm tactics Those that are living by faith are not given to violence. They're not given to strong-arm tactics because they're trusting in the Lord. They want to respond in the way that Jesus would. Number four, in verses 15 through 16, they're they're given to taking advantage of others. He says, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that, here's the key, that you may look on his nakedness. And it was an indictment against using seduction and drunkenness to get their way and take advantage of others. Now, you might read that and think, I would never do something like that. I would never resort to getting somebody drunk that I might have my way with them. But how many of us How many of us have used guilt trips as a form of manipulation to do the same thing? That we guilt people into doing what we want them to do because we're unwilling to trust that God can move on hearts, that the Lord is going to bring it all to fruition, that I can trust this situation and my life right now into his hands because his hands are nail scarred because Jesus went to the cross. And I can place my life, I can place this situation into his hands because those scars remind me of his love for me. I don't have to try to manipulate people into doing what I want them to do because his ways are perfect. His timing is perfect. And the fifth woe is that They're given to idolatry. Look in verse 19. He says, woe to him who says to wood, awake. In Psalm 115, verse 8, the psalmist said, those who worship idols make their idols to be like themselves. And that's really what idolatry is. It's self-worship. They make a God that is going to act the way that I would act. Or we would act the way or respond the way way that I would respond to any given situation. And when we're not trusting God, when we're not living by faith, we can do the same thing. That we basically are putting ourselves on the throne of our lives. And in doing so, we're saying, God, I can't trust you for this. So I've got to take these matters into my own hands. And when we're doing that, that's all we're doing. It's another form of idolatry. We're putting self on the throne. So I ask you this question as we close, as we wrap up today. How are you living? Is it faith and trust in the Lord or is your faith in you? Who's on the throne? Who's on the throne? Well, do you try to manipulate others because you can't trust God to do the work? Do you cut corners in business because you can't trust God to provide doing things maybe the, the right way? Are you given to greed because you can't trust him for your future? Or are, are you generous? If the answer to any of those is yes, listen, you're not living at least the way that God intended it to live, for us to live. We're merely just existing. And I know all of us can struggle with any of those things at any one time. But the point is, his point is, hey, the just, those who have been made righteous in Christ, they trust, they live by faith. Their whole life is marked by who they are in me. Now, one last thing I want us to see because in the midst of all of these woes, and we'll end with this and we're going to do communion to close out today. In verse 14, right in the middle of all this woe stuff, there's an island of hope in the sea of woe. He says this, look at it again. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Now this is so important for Habakkuk to hear. He's saying, yeah, Babylon, they look glorious right now, but their glory is going to fade they're powerful, but it's going to fade. But my glory will last. My glory will abide forever. He's saying, Habakkuk, remember the big picture. There's a day coming. A day coming when I'm going to set up my kingdom on the earth and it will be filled with my glory and Paul wrote something in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 that I just love, and I'll read it to you. It won't be on the screen, but he says, when he comes, speaking of Jesus, in that day to be glorified in his saints. I love that phrase. Because you know what? That's God's heart right now. How do I know that? Well, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, he said, hey, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. So let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, they may see your good conduct, and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here's the key. There's a day coming when his glory is going to be revealed, but every single day his glory can be shining forth and revealed in people who realize that Jesus has made them just, justified because of what Jesus did, and they live in that reality. They live and they rest and they rejoice And they let their lives be marked by the fact that, hey, Jesus did it all. And I am in right standing with God right now because of what Jesus did. And I'm going to rest in that. I'm going to walk in that. And every day we have an amazing reminder. It's the cross. And today as we close our time together, we're going to once again just worship And we're going to partake of those two elements, the the bread and the cup, that speak to us of what Jesus did on the cross. How his body was broken as he took all of our sin upon himself and how his blood was shed. And the Bible says that that through his blood is the remission of sins, that his blood, when it covers our sins that are as red as scarlet, that we become as white as snow. And that's how God sees you today. And he sees me. He sees us covered in the righteousness of Christ. And he says, so believe that. Let that mark your life and live in that reality. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible, awesome, amazing truth. The just shall live by faith. Lord, we rejoice in that reality that you have made us just. And Lord, we want to rest in that reality and walk in that reality each and every day of just knowing that you are for us, that you are with us, that you go before us, that you are fair and that you are on the throne. And God, we want to just walk in that reality and the cross reminds us of your incredible love. And so today, as a church family, As we partake of these elements, Lord, we just do so rejoicing in who you are.